Happy Sabbath. I want to give a, a special thanks to our young people for their song and their reminder to us that we are God's hands and feet in this world, aren't we? We really are. And uh, very thankful that the Lord has provided us a school with wonderful teachers. And we pray for them and ask for God's richest blessings upon them. And let's remember to do that during the week. <clears throat> um, it's a blessing for me to share with you something that's a passion on my heart. Some of you know that about me. And that has to do with the sanctuary. And uh, the sanctuary actually became, uh, uh, this is actually what I'm going to be doing here is beginning a five-part series with you on the sanctuary. And <clears throat> I was introduced to the sanctuary when I was a boy at nine years old. Um, I shared with you my testimony how we came out of the Catholic Church. Uh, when my mother began to read the Bible for herself, she read herself out of the Catholic Church. And, um, and we ended up going to an Adventist church that was a few blocks from our home. Um, I went to uh, the Glendale City Church, of those of you who may know where the Glendale City Church is there in Glendale, California, and uh, for a VBS, and they did it on the sanctuary. Um, I think to my knowledge, I've only known of one other church that's ever done that. But it impacted my life as a boy. It, the imagery really stuck in my head. And then you know my story, how I walked away from the Lord, and then later I came back as a, an adult in my 20s. And when I came back to the Lord and started coming to church, I ran into people that said, the sanctuary is very important to us. And I ran into others that said, the sanctuary is not important to us. Now, I'm not the brightest star in the sky, but I recognize that both of those statements can't be true. Either it is or it isn't. So I decided to do something unusual. I studied the Bible out for myself to see if it was important. And what I discovered is that it is. I learned, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you remove everything in the Bible that has to do with the sanctuary, every reference to it, you removed it, your Bible would literally fall apart in your hands. The Bible is saturated with sanctuary terminology and imagery from beginning to end. In fact, the New Testament writer, when he writes, he writes in a way that he assumes that the reader understands the sanctuary. When he writes, he assumes that the reader understands it. And if you don't understand it, you're not getting half of what the New Testament writer is trying to communicate. In fact, if you look at the book of John, the book of Revelation, it is saturated with sanctuary terminology and imagery. It's really interesting, but unless we understand the sanctuary, we're not going to understand what is going on. The thing, the reason why the sanctuary fascinated me is because it explains the plan of salvation more clearly than you're going to get it anywhere else. You know, the book of uh, the, uh, Paul, Paul, the book of Romans, Paul is credited for really fleshing out righteousness by faith. But I want you to be honest, how many of you read Paul and couldn't understand what he was saying? And you know, it's interesting to me, I read Paul because I wanted to understand this thing called righteousness by faith, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. But when I studied the sanctuary and began to see it there, when I went back to Paul's writings, it made sense. It made perfect sense. So that was the reason why the sanctuary is so important. The other thing, and this was really the main reason that I studied the sanctuary, is that the sanctuary reveals to us how God gives us victory over sin. And I'll be honest with you, my, my reasons for studying the sanctuary wasn't because I had some fascination with uh, Jewish uh, antiquity and, 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 their, and their worship style. It wasn't that at all. I was struggling with sin, and I want to know how to get victory. And that's why I studied it. And so we're going to be looking at the sanctuary. And for those of you who know me, I, I am a very practical person. If I can't figure out how it works and why it applies to me, I'm not interested. And many times when I heard the sanctuary presented, it was always blue means this and gold means that, and that's all fine and good, but I'm struggling with sin, and what does that have to do with me anyway? So I'm, we're going to be looking at it from the, the angle of how it applies to us in a very practical way. Um, 
I want to share with you two uh, quotes here. I could have shared many, but just two. Where do I point this? This first one comes from the book, Great Controversy. If you've never read it, I really encourage you to read it. Uh, the author on page 488 brings his observation in regards to the sanctuary. The sanctuary in heaven is the very what? Center of Christ's work in behalf of man. Now, this is really interesting. If you read the book of Hebrews, Paul, uh, he, uh, Paul in Hebrews is referencing the sanctuary in heaven. He's trying to get your direction there. And he refers to the sanctuary as a shadow, right? All right, a shadow. Let's think about a shadow. All right, I'm standing here. I got these lights, and you can see my shadow. In fact, if I had a pillar here, and you couldn't see me, but you could see, see my shadow, what is the shadow telling you? That I'm there, that there's, there, the shadow is, is, is pointing, to, is telling us there is, the substance is nearby. And so when Paul is referring to the sanctuary as the shadow, he's telling us that the substance is somewhere else. And he reveals it for us in Hebrews, and that is in heaven. A number of Bible writers, including Daniel and also David, reference that fact. Uh, now, so if it's the very center of Christ's work on behalf of man, it's, it's the control center. You know, if you're involved in a war and you discover where your enemy's control center is, what's your job? To destroy it. Right now, we know the devil can't nuke the sanctuary in heaven. So he found other ways to do it, to get people to forget that it's even there. But it's important for us to know what Christ is doing so that we can intelligently cooperate with him. So let me continue. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of man. It concerns how many souls? Every soul living upon the earth. It opens the view, the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumph, uh, the triumph issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is the utmost importance that how many? Does that include you and me? That all should thoroughly investigate this subject and be able to give an answer to everyone that giveth them a reason for the hope that is in them. And so in understanding the plan of salvation as revealed in the sanctuary, it makes it much easier for you to witness. By the way, we're going to learn the sanctuary is all about Jesus. In Great Controversy, page 88, we continue. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need of knowledge for themselves. For who? themselves for the, of the position and the work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be, what's the next word? Impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God desires them to fill. And in other words, unless we understand this, we're not going to understand our mission or our message. We will not understand our mission or our message unless we understand the sanctuary. And so as I mentioned, the one on earth was only a shadow of the one in heaven. But God gave it to us so that we can understand what was happening in heaven. If we study what's happening here, we'll understand what's happening there. Does that make sense? That's what God gave it to us, a mechanism of instruction. I believe David figured this out. Oops, I didn't give you the second one. No wonder when I said pause, nobody said anything. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, let me first uh, uh, share with you, I'm sorry that came out so small. It wasn't that small on my, on my slide. But uh, the five uh, points or the five uh, parts of this presentation, the first one we're going to look at is that the sanctuary is a model for prayer. You're going to be surprised about that, but the sanctuary actually tells you what to pray for. Um, and it also prepares the heart for communion with God. The second thing we're going to learn in the second presentation, which I entitled The Daily Today, we're going to learn that the sanctuary actually teaches us how to walk with Jesus every day. And in that walk, it teaches us how to have victory over sin. Did you know that? The third one I've entitled The Good News of the Judgment. When most people think about the judgment, good news isn't attached to it. They look at the judgment as something to fear. And the congregation said? Uh-huh. They look at it as something to fear. And what they fear is the Father. They fear what the decision the Father is going to make in my case. I promise you, 
that when we're done with that presentation, you will no longer fear the Father. You won't. There is something to fear, however, and we're going to find out what it is, but it's not God. The third one uh, is why Jesus waits. And what we're going to learn is that the sanctuary actually reveals the reason for the delay in the second coming. When you understand the operation of the sanctuary, this is going to make sense. And then the last one is the overview of the judgment. The judgment actually in Scripture is actually a three-part uh, matter. And, uh, and, and we're going to learn some lessons there that are very important uh, and relevant to us. Now, there's a quote up there, and uh, I, I don't think anybody over 40 can read that. But uh, it, it's a text found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 77, verse 13. It says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. David figured it out. He caught it. Your way is in the sanctuary. I submit to you that David came to understand the operation of the sanctuary, which is the, the plan of salvation, after his sin with Bathsheba. Until he realized how big a sinner he was, he did not realize how big a savior he needed. And the sanctuary re reveals a savior from sin. It does. Um, and it's fascinating to me now that I have studied the sanctuary to see how, how well David understood the sanctuary and its operation. So for those of you who may not know the sanctuary, not have any uh, exposure to it, uh, this study that we're going to do today, uh, the sanctuary prayer, is going to lay a foundation for you as to understanding how the sanctuary ran. But for those of you who already have some experience, this is going to be a nice refresher for you. So uh, what I'd like to begin here is, um, is the purpose of the sanctuary. God gave the sanctuary to Israel as a mechanism of instruction. He wanted them to understand that he had found a solution to the sin problem. And the sanctuary illustrates it. It was like a big kindergarten in understanding the plan of salvation. You know, Paul makes it very clear that the killing of the animals never did away with sin. Book of Hebrews makes it clear. There was another reason. He was using the sanctuary to illustrate how God was going to deal with the sin problem. And, uh, and what we're really going to be studying is righteousness by faith. That's what we're going to be looking at. Today... Uh, we obviously do not participate in those services today. The death of Christ brought that to an end. The Bible makes that clear. But, but what the sanctuary does do for us today, to the Christians, those living in the under the Christian dispensation, is that it reveals to us what Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing for us, and what Christ is about to do for us. There is a prophetic component to the sanctuary. And again, we're gonna, this is going to be a very practical approach. Now, I use the sanctuary model for prayer in my own life for two reasons. For one, I have the attention span of a gnat with ADD. <laughs> if you doubt this, talk to my wife. But I'm one of these people that I'll start praying and end up with my Walmart list. Are you like that? No. I know you are. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> my mind just tends to wander this way and that. And the sanctuary, as I'm going through the sanctuary in my mind, it helps me to be focused when I'm talking to the Lord. The second thing is that the sanctuary actually teaches me how to approach God. You know, God is not like us, friends. Can we say amen to that? He wants us to be like Him. And so the sanctuary actually prepares my heart on how to meet with Him. The other thing the sanctuary does is it tells me, reminds me, it prompts me what I should be praying for, and we're going to go through that together. Now, what I'm going to be doing here is you're actually, go I'm going to invite you into my devotional life, more specifically my prayer life, because before I enter into my prayer life, I mean, I pray before I read my Bible, but then I have this special prayer time with God, but I spend time in the Word first. That's how I do it. You may do it differently, and that's fine, um, but... Uh, but what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm sharing with you here, don't, please don't make the mistake of saying this, of thinking that what I'm advocating is this is the way you should pray. That, that's not what I'm advocating. I'm sharing with you how I do it. 
Do you see the difference? Now, one thing I will share, though, if you study the Lord's Prayer and you study the prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9, you will find the exact same elements of what I'm going to show you in the sanctuary. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Now, you should have a handout with you. Uh, and in your bulletin, it's a short, it's a little half sheet like this. All right? And... Um, uh, you can follow along, and maybe if you wish, to go home uh, maybe this week and try it and see if it's a blessing to you. But you can follow out to have a pencil and paper ready, and you can make notes as we go along. Uh, so what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at the sanctuary from three perspectives. The first perspective is from the ministry of the earthly priest, what he did at each section, uh, at each furniture and uh, we're going to look at it from there first. Secondly, we're going to look at it, uh, we're going to see how that activity points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second perspective. And then the third is how this prompts me to pray. So the first is the role of the priest, the second, how it points me to Jesus, and third is uh, how it prompts me to pray. And before we begin, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. If you'll bow your heads as I pray. Father in heaven, we are done with the introduction to this presentation, as you know. Lord, in your word, you remind us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And, and however well a presentation may be given, unless you're in it, Father, unless your spirit is working through it, it is meaningless. So we humbly come before you, Lord, as broken sinners in need of a Savior, we pray for the blood of Christ to wash away our sin, for the righteousness of Jesus to cover us, for there is no other righteousness we can offer you. We pray, Lord, for the outpouring of your spirit that we will recognize your communication. And Lord, I pray that you'll hide this instrument behind the cross that only Christ will be heard. Now, Father, please grace us with your presence. Reveal yourself to us, Lord, for it is by beholding that we become changed. We thank you for this. For we ask it all in the precious name of your dear son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to share with you uh, a number of quotes from Great Controversy. This will be another one that's, that I found to be very uh, powerful and helpful. It says, Satan well knows that, how many? Whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. Therefore, he invents every possible device to engross the mind. My friends, please hear me. I've said this, and I'll repeat it. No one will be saved by church membership. No one. We are saved through Jesus Christ and him only. Amen. But we have to be connected to Jesus. It's not just knowing the truth. It's also yielding to the truth. The devil knows the truth. Doesn't do him any good because he's not yielding to it. And, and the way this is brought about is by spending time with God every day in prayer and in his word. Otherwise, our hope of heaven is in vain. I'm just telling you straight up. We're not saved through club membership but through a living connection with our blessed Redeemer every day as the only way. So one of the things the sanctuary teaches us is the timing for prayer. Um, the sanctuary services that took place every day was known as the daily. Why? Because it took place every... That's pretty, that's pretty practical, right? There were activities that took place at the brazen altar at the laver of water, at the menorah, at the table of showbread, and at the golden altar. These activities were known as the daily. Now, over here in the most holy place, that activity only took place once a year, and the Jewish people referred to it as the yearly services. That makes sense? Uh, the daily services began in the morning, and what would happen is a priest would be looking to the sun on the horizon, and when the sun broke the horizon, he would blow the shofar. 
And that was the signal for all of Israel to turn to the tabernacle and begin their day in prayer. Now, at that, while they were doing that, the high priest would give a burnt offering. A burnt offering is a dedicatory offering, okay? And he was giving on behalf of the people. As they were turning towards the tabernacle in prayer, they were dedicating themselves anew to God. And, and, and so how does this point me to Jesus? Well, Jesus is our example in all things. Isn't that true? And Jesus, the Bible says in the Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Jesus spent time with his Father. He started his day in prayer. Jesus is my example, and that's why I want to begin my time in prayer. It's important to begin it in the morning. Um, why? Well, <clears throat> I think a fellow I listened to when I was first beginning my walk with God, and I was living in Southern California, I was listening to um, a radio station, a Christian radio station, and there was a man talking about prayer, and he asked the question, why should we begin our day in prayer? And then he, he asked this question, when does a warrior put on his armor before or after the battle. Isn't that right? Yes. We got to armor up yes. in the start of the day. And otherwise, we're going to end up with the loser's prayer at the end of the day. Lord, I'm sorry I did this. And Lord, I'm sorry I did that. And Lord, I'm right. And we don't want that. So we want to armor up. Now, very interesting. I have discovered that I don't have to set my alarm when I ask God to wake me up. Now, I do have to get out of bed. He's not going to grab me by the nap of the neck. Isn't that right? But the Lord, my friends, if we want to spend time with him, he will wake us up. And, and, and by the way, how many of you have noticed this, that sometimes he'll wake you up at some crazy hour and you'll go, why are you waking me up so early? And then as the day progresses, you find out why. Is that, am I right, Cynthia? Isn't that true? Yeah, you find out later why. The Lord said, you're going to need some extra time with me today. He knows why. Um, so what we're going to do now is, uh, is, is see how the sanctuary is a model for prayer. Um, the first thing that, uh, that we encounter is the, the, uh, the, the door or the, the gate into the uh, sanctuary. Now, <clears throat> Israel, as you know, wandered to the wilderness for 40 years, and Scholars that have studied scriptures approximate that in that time period, they probably moved about 50 times in that time period. And, uh, you know, we don't really put much thought into this, but uh, you're looking at approximately 2 million people. And if you study how God organized them, they were extremely organized, it, it, right down to how they took care of their human waste. It's amazing. Now, some of you came back from Oshkosh, and how many Pathfinders were there at Oshkosh this year? I know. 57,000. How many of you went? That's all? Okay, so I'll look over here then. Do you remember what it was like to head to the restrooms? Do you remember what that was like with just 57,000? Try 2 million. But the Lord had it all organized. It's absolutely amazing. But one thing that's very significant is that the sanctuary had one entranceway, and that entranceway always had to face east. The Lord always told him specifically, when you set it up, that gate has to face east. Now, why is that? There are two reasons. I'll, I'll, read, I'll give you the secondary reason first, then I'll give you the main reason. The, the secondary reason is the competing religion of the day for God's true religion was Baal worship. Baal worship was sun worship. And the sun worshipers, when they worshiped, faced east. But if you were going to worship God, you were going to have to face west. And so it was a safeguard for Israel. But there's another reason. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis.
Genesis chapter 3. And you're familiar with this chapter. This is the chapter where is the fall of, of our human family. Adam and Eve did not listen to God. They didn't trust him. And because of it, they sinned. And remember, I've shared with you, before their sin, their first has to be distrust. And uh, then the, in the middle there, it talks about God is sharing with them the results of their action. But what I want to lock in on is the very end of that chapter, beginning with verse 22. Pay attention carefully here. Then the Lord uh, said, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live for how long? Let's pause right there. Aren't you thankful that God did not allow that? Amen. Can you imagine living eternally in this state? Mercy. Death is better. God is merciful. Let's continue reading. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man and he placed cherubim at the, the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this is very interesting. So when they left, what direction did they leave? They went east. Okay, and if you look early on, it's very interesting, especially with the, with, the, with the initial children and descendants of Adam, East always comes to symbolize walking away from God. Very interesting. Now, if you were going to return to God, which direction did you have to walk? West. And so West shows the way back. The sanctuary shows the process back to God. And the last, in the most holy place... There is a festival at the close of the Jewish calendar year known as the Day of Atonement, the Day of at one It ends with the reunification of God's people with God, the Creator. That's what God was trying to illustrate through the sanctuary service. But how does this, how does this gate uh, remind me of Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us. In John 10, verse 9, and 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus, these are the words of Christ, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Then Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, Muhammad will not save you. Amen. Buddha will not save you. Amen. Your works will not save you. Amen. Only Jesus Christ will save you. That was the first lesson that we learn at the gate. Now, King David, who was a servant, uh, a student of the sanctuary, and I believe that after his fall with Bathsheba, he really kicked it in his study in the high gear, uh, he reveals to us a lot about the worship of God. And he gave instructions on what should be taking place upon entering through those gates. And we find that in Psalms 101 through 5. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord how? With gladness. Come before his presence with what? Singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are uh, his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. And so <clears throat> that was the instruction the children of Israel had when entering into through those gates and into the holy place. And so in my mind as I begin my devotional time with God, I begin by thanking and praising him. I begin by singing to him. And, you know, thanking and praising is really amazing because what happens when you begin to thank and praise God is that God gets bigger and your problems get Amen. It does. You know, we were told, you have no, we have nothing to fear for the future except we forget how God has led us in his past teachings. And so how important it is to begin by praising him and thanking him. And what this does, not only does it make God bigger and our problems smaller, but it also has an impact on me as I think of my big God. You know, when we murmur and complain, the opposite happens. Problems get bigger and our God gets smaller. God doesn't want us to murmur and complain. By the way, I am fully convinced that when we praise and thank God, 
by remembering the things He's done for us, that angels of light draw near. I also believe that when we murmur and complain, that the angels of darkness draw near. Now that we know this, we're not going to murmur and complain anymore, are we? We're going to take all our problems to God. In another uh, wonderful book uh, entitled Prophets and Kings, we find this quote in regards to praise. If more praising of God were engaged in now, hope and courage and faith would steadily increase. How many here need hope, courage, and their faith to increase? Yeah, I just gave you the secret. Praise God. Praise His name. Now, listen. I know there comes times in one's life when you're so low through grief that it's hard to look up. Been there. When you find yourself there and you can't think of anything to thank God for, go through the alphabet in your mind. A, what can I thank God for that begins with an A? Apples. I can thank God for apples. Apples are good for me. Thank you, Lord. B, I thank God for the bees who provide me honey. Are you with me? When, when, you're, when, when that day comes, just go through the alphabet and you'll find many things. We have many things to praise God for. Every day, don't we, friends? Amen. So now, after praising and thanking God, I advance to the outer court. There were two uh, furnitures in the outer court. There was the brazen altar, and there was the laver of water. And let's stop first at the brazen altar. Uh, the brazen altar uh, was made out of brass. Actually, the brass mirrors of the women. Um, the Bible tells us. And I don't know if you're aware of this. How many of you have seen uh, paintings of the sanctuary and then you see the tents right up against the, t the sanctuary? You seen that? That, that actually isn't accurate. Um, the, the, where do we get this from? Where are you getting this from, Pastor? If you remember the story when the children of Israel were crossing, uh, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, not the Red Sea, the Jordan, that God gave specific instructions on how close the children of Israel could come to the tabernacle. And if you remember, it was like 2,000 cubits, which really amounts to about two-thirds of a mile. So the, the Ark of the Covenant went first, and then the, once the water stopped, then the children of Israel would have crossed about 2,000 cubits from it. And so basically what you had when they set up the camp, as they were moving through the wilderness for 40 years, there was this incredible distance, a plaza of about three-fourths, three uh, two-thirds of a mile around the sanctuary. Well, Pastor, why are you mentioning this? Well, when you understood how the sanctuary functions, that plaza comes into play. You see, let's say my name is Joshua and I have committed a sin. Okay, I got, the Holy Spirit has brought to my mind something I did in violation of God's law, and the Holy Spirit has, has really touched my heart, and I'm repented. I know what I need to do now. I get my lamb, and I begin heading towards the sanctuary, towards the tabernacle, okay? As I'm coming to the edge of the camp, now between me and the tabernacle is the space of two-thirds of a mile. And don't you know, once I get out in that space, people are going to know. And don't you know, tongues are going to wag. I wonder what Joshua did. Do you think there was some peer pressure back then? Just as there is today. My friends, it's always worth it to serve God. Always worth it to serve. Be more concerned about what God thinks than what other people think. Can we say amen to that? So anyway, so Joshua begins his walk towards the sanctuary. And when he gets to the gate, the priest meets him. And, and when the priest meets him, he tells him the role he's about to play. And so Joshua gets his lamb. And what he does next is he confesses his sin over the lamb. He doesn't confess his sin to the priest. His confession is to God. But he places his hand over the lamb. And in so doing, he is symbolically transferring his sin to the lamb. You see, God was trying to teach Israel how he was going to deal with the sin issue. And so this, the sin is now transferred to the lamb. 
Then Joshua, with his own hand, had to take the life of the innocent victim. And as the blood of the innocent victim was pouring out, the priest would capture it in the bowl, symbolizing that his sin, this Joshua's sin, which was transferred to the lamb, is now in the blood. Are you with me? Amen. This is very important. If you miss this, you miss the whole deal. Then what the priest would do is he would then go into the tabernacle and sprinkle the blood before the veil seven times, signifying that the sin that belonged to Joshua that was transferred to the lamb, that was transferred through the blood in the bowl, was now transferred onto the, into the sanctuary. And the record of that sin now was there. Did you catch that? And we're going to learn later on the Day of Atonement how that is removed. But all throughout the year, those sins were transferred day after day, month after month. And the day of, the of, day of Atonement, that will be removed. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so how does this point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in 1 John, in John 1.29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, it was at the tabernacle or at the brazen altar where sin and sinner were separated. That brazen altar pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ when the Lamb of God would come and with his own life pay the ransom for your sin and mine. For your sin and mine. So during my prayer time, after I have praised God and thanked Him, when I, in my mind I come to the brazen altar, I ask God if there's anything in my heart between my soul and my Savior. I ask God if there's anything between me and others, because if there's something between me and others, it's also between me and my Savior. And I'll ask God to just bring to my mind the last 24 hours, is there anything there? And you know, the Lord may reveal to me that I spoke impatiently to my wife. That's dishonoring to him. The Lord may reveal to me that I spoke unkindly to my children. And so not only do I have to ask God for forgiveness, guess what else? I have to ask them also to forgive me. Isn't that true? And so it's here. And I, I just want to share something that's very important. God isn't into ambiguity. God is not into generalities. Have you ever had somebody who's done something to hurt you, and then later they come to you, and they hurt you, and there's no way that they knew it hurt you. Then they come to you later, and they say something like, you know, if I did something to hurt you, I'm sorry. How did that go over? It's meaningful when they come to you, look in the eye, and you say, you know, Bill, when I said this, I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? That's it. It's, being, it's owning up. It's taking ownership of what we did wrong. And let me tell you, friends, it, God works the same way. If we did something, it's not like we're hiding something from God. Who are we kidding? Don't play the game. But what God wants us to do is take responsibility because the whole plan of salvation is based on responsibility. And so we got to go to the Lord and be specific. You know, Lord, you're right. I shouldn't have said that to my wife. It was wrong. Now I got to go to her and tell her the same thing. And the congregation said? Amen. So God wants us to be specific. And uh, so, so, so then, once I have made sure everything's right between me and the Lord, and, and I've already promised that I'll make things right with me and others, I then go to the next part, which is the labor of water. Um, the, the labor of water was placed there um, for the priest. Before the priest could enter into his service, in the sanctuary, he had to first wash his hands and feet. The kids, when they were singing, we are his hands, we are his feet, it's basically the same idea. Because in washing our hands and our feet, what we're basically saying is, Lord, everything I do and everywhere I go is to your glory and honor. I want to honor you with everything I do and everywhere I go. And so it's making sure that it, before he ministered, he, there was a water experience. Before he ministered, there was a water experience for the priest. How does this point me to Jesus? 
Well, um, Luke tells us. In Luke 3, verses 21 through 23, we find that Jesus also had a water experience before he began ministry. And it came to pass that Jesus also was... Do I have the... I didn't. didn't come up. Okay, that, Jesus, that he was also what? Baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about how old? 30 years of age. Luke, Luke was a Gentile, converted Gentile, and Luke was a melancholy. How do you know, Pastor? Because he was really big on detail. Why mentioned that he was 30? It was very significant if you understand the sanctuary. Because you weren't, the, the priest couldn't begin ministering in the sanctuary until he reached the age of 30. And so by Jesus being 30, see, the whole sanctuary points us to Christ, friends. All of it does. And so Jesus was 30 when he began. And so Jesus had a, a water experience, and that water experience then inaugurated his ministry. How many here have been baptized? You had a water experience, and that inaugurated you for ministry for Christ. Did you know that? And so what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a time of commitment, of renewing our commitment to Christ. And so what, do, so what does this do for me uh, as I am praying? Well, it prompts me, it reminds me each day to recommit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And... What I do is I'm sitting here thinking each morning, I'm just, I'm just going to share with you what I do. I ask God to write his laws on my heart. I want his will to be my will. I ask God to create in me a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within me. When I, as, during this time, as I'm, as I'm recommitting my life to God, I, I ask him um, to take my heart because I can't give it to him to keep it pure for me because I can't keep it for him, to take my weak, unchristlike self and to mold me in the very atmosphere of heaven where the rich current of his love will flow through my life. I recommit my life so that people can see Jesus and not George. So I recommit myself to him each day. Now, one thing we have to remember um, comes in our very next section. In our next section now, we walk into the holy place. The holy place had three furnishings. There was the menorah, the seven-stick candlestick. There was the table of, two, of showbread with the two stacks of loaves of bread, and there was the golden altar. Let's go to the menorah first. Uh, the menorah was the only natural light source in the holy place, and even though we call it uh, a candlestick holder, there were no candles. It was actually fueled by oil, pressed olives, olive oil. And there were wicks. And it was the job of the priest to make sure that that light never went out. They had specific instruction. That light never goes out. Why? Because it pointed us to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And... Um, John 8, 12, we see the words of the Savior, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And uh, so the candle, or the, the, the menorah, was filled with oil, and that was the source. What is the oil a symbol of in Scripture? Who can tell me? It's the Holy Spirit. And if you need a reference for that, it's uh, Zechariah 4, 6. And... And so the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we just read that when Jesus was baptized, what descended upon him? The Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled. And so, so how does this prompt me to pray? Well, after I recommit my life to the Lord, I ask God to fill me with the Holy Spirit. You see, it was the oil that gave fuel to the light. Jesus was filled and he shone. And he reminds us in the Sermon of the Mount that you and I are lights in the world. And unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not going to shine. Amen. So every day I begin my day, I ask, Lord, please fill me. I want to I show you a quote 
uh, from uh, Volume 6 Testimonies, page 117. It says this. We need and must have fresh supplies. How often? Every day. All heaven is what? Waiting for channels through which can be poured the holy oil to be a joy and a blessing to others. Isn't that cool? It's not like we have to beg heaven. God, but God is a gentleman. He doesn't force. So he is waiting for us to... He's a gentleman. Every day, he is waiting. Who's asking today? There's Cynthia. She's asking. Okay. Oh, they're not asking. Oh, they're asking. Are you with me? So that we can shine for him. So I ask the Lord to fill me with his spirit. I, I want to be like Jesus. I want him to live out his life within me. I don't want people to see me. I want them to see him. And so I ask God for revival. You know what revival is, don't you? It's, it's becoming aware. That's when you start to, that's when God reveals to you where you're not showing like, shining like him. And that's when we, we, we fess up. And we ask him to change us. And uh, not only revival, but revival has to be followed by reformation. You know what reformation is, don't you? That means a change. And then after reformation, there has to be a continuation every day. And so I pray for the Lord to help me. And one of the ways that I need that oil is to witness for him that I may rightly represent him. So every day as I start my day, I ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the third thing, or the next uh, item, is the table of showbread. Now, the table of showbread had 12 loaves in two stacks, as you can see there. Six on one side, six on the other, 12 in total. And those loaves represented the tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes in total. And, and, and the lesson that, was, that those loaves were to teach Israel is that it was God who was going to supply all of their needs, both physically and spiritually. God was the one who supplied their needs. There was no need for them to pat themselves on the back. God was the supplier. Isn't that true? And so how does this uh, point us to Jesus? Well, in John 6, verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You see, brothers and sisters, everything we have, we owe to God. Jesus is the one that provides for me both physically and spiritually, and he's given us his word, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we're to spend time in God's word. But God is the one that provides all of our needs, and Paul brings this out in Philippians 4.19. He says, and my God shall supply some of your needs, all of them, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I love what Paul says, by the way. I'm just going to give you the Baute version. But Paul says, look, if he gave his son for you, what is he going to withhold from you? Think of the line of reasoning. If he emptied heaven of its greatest gift, if he risked the throne to save your life, what is he not going to provide for you that you need? How cool is that? What a great argument. But, but there's a difference between needs and greeds. So that, I'll save that one for another sermon. But the bottom line is that God is the one that provides our needs. So when Pastor Baute starts his day, his day uh, what I do is I bring my day planner, and I have listed out all the things that I need to do that day. And I go step by step over those things with the Lord. Lord, today I got to meet with so-and-so. Lord, I'm gonna, I, I don't know what the situation here is, but you do know. Will you please give me the, the, the wisdom and give to this, this dear soul what they need at this time? Or maybe I have a meeting. Father, guide us as we meet together. May your mind be given to us that your will may be done. Or maybe something else. And something that's really interesting is while this time, what will happen to me is oftentimes God will bring to my mind things I've forgotten. So I usually have my pencil handy because if you, if you do the, oh, I'll remember this later business, you know where that's going. So I write down what the Lord tells me. Many times I will come to the Lord and say, Lord, I have a schedule conflict. I can't do this. And God will bring to my mind someone who can resolve that issue for me. It's amazing what God does when I bring my stuff to him in the morning so he'll provide for me what I need. Are you with me? So this is how I start my day. Uh, God will give me. So make sure. One of the things I like to do is go for walks, and I'll write those uh, as I pray to the Lord uh, on a three-by-five card, and I, and I talk to him while I'm walking. But I have to have a pencil with me 
because he's going to be He's going to be bringing stuff to my mind. i got to write it down. Does that make sense? So once I've presented my needs to the Lord, I then go to the golden altar. And the golden altar stood right before the curtain. This curtain right here separated the holy from the most holy. By the way, what was here in the most holy place? Okay. The Ark of the Covenant. What else? The Shekinah glory. What was in that Shekinah glory? It was God. How would you like to be the priest that day who is placing the incense on the ark and know that within a few feet on the other side of that curtain is God? Now, now, now Bible students, let's put our thinking caps on. Of all the activities that the priest did on the daily, it was this one that brought him closer to God than any other. So what took place there? What took place? Well, the priest would bring incense and he would place it on that golden altar and the incense would go up. What was the incense a symbol of? And I think I have a reference for you there. It's Psalms 141, verse 2. David says, let my prayer be set before you as, as incense. So that incense represented the prayers of, the, of God's people. By the way, it also represented the righteousness of Christ. Because unless those prayers are, are, are connected with the righteousness of Jesus, they're not going anywhere. You with me? It's those prayers that make, it's his righteousness that makes my prayer acceptable to the Father. And so it was that time of prayer that brings us closer to God than anything else. And so the priest played as mediator for the people as he presented the prayers before the Father. And how does this point me to Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible tells us. In Hebrews, Paul does. Hebrews chapter uh, 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also... Wait, 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 wait. We're missing a text. We're missing a text. It didn't show up. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. Write this down. 2 Timothy 2, 5. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So that priest was actually a representative, a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in heaven is our mediator. And then in Hebrews 7.25, Paul has this to say about his mediation. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. That's the role of a mediator, intercession. By the way, I love this text. The text says, do you realize this text could have said this? He is also able to save those who come to him, come to God through him. He is also able to save those who come to God through him. Wouldn't that have been true? Yes. But Paul adds something. He is able to, also, he, uh, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. What was Paul saying? No matter how big a sinner you have been, God can reach down deeper still. That's what it's saying, to the uttermost. I love that. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Now, let's stop for that. What if it said, since he lives to make intercession for them? Wouldn't that have been true? But he always lives. It's his joy to intercede for you and me. That's what that is telling us. I love it. And so right here, I, you know, the, uh, the Peter, if, if, uh, if you need a reference, the Apostle Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9, reminds us that you and I are a nation of priests. And so you and I have the right to intercede for others. Amen. I'm going to share something with you. I didn't plan to say it here, but I'm going to do it. How many of you are familiar with the term rules of engagement? That's a military term. Uh, there are actually rules for fighting and killing each other. <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Uh, right after World War I, you know, during World War I, they threw everything they can get their hands on at each other. That's where tanks came from and machine guns and all that, and also chemical warfare. I don't know how many of you are aware that chemical warfare was used during World War I. And uh, they, they hurled that stuff at each other, and people died horrific deaths. 
After World War I, the, world's, the nations came together and they said, no more chemical warfare. So that was a rule. When World War II came, there was no chemical warfare that was used in the, in the battlefield. Are you with me? That's rules of engagement. In the battle between Christ and Satan, there are rules of engagement. The devil cannot force himself into your life. You have to invite him. He can tempt you. you can te he can tempt you. But he cannot come into your life unless you invite him. But God will not force himself into your life either unless he is invited. So when we pray, we're inviting God into a situation. Now, I have kids just like you do, and I pray for them. And as they get older, then, then they, in their minds, they know everything. Of course, we never went through that. But, um, and so, so what happens is when my, my children tell me stuff, I, I kind of, you know how our, as parents, <laughs> sometimes counsel is better given if it's given through somebody else. <laughs> and, so, and so as I listen, what they don't realize is they're creating for me my prayer list. And then later I go and I storm the gates of heaven on their behalf. And God hears. So, so, in the rules of engagement, we, God will not force himself into the life. Uh, so I, we can't pray for others. And I want you to know that every day I am praying for you. Every morning as I'm going for my walk, I am lifting you up before the Lord. I want you to know that. Every day. I'm praying for this community as well because God placed us here for a reason. And I'm praying for them as well. I pray for my friends. I pray for my classmates back at the academy many years past. I pray for my family. I pray for my family first. Now, when my children were very small, I began praying for their spouses. I began praying for their spouse's parents. Now, I don't know if I've met them. I figure I will soon. They're both in their 20s. Well, my daughter's about to be 20. But, uh, but the day I meet them, I'm going to walk up to that individual and tell them, I have been praying for you for decades. I want you to know that. And uh, so I pray for them. Now, I want to I share with you two quotes here. First one comes from Volume 1 Testimonies, page 346. I love this quote. At the sound of fervent prayer, Satan's whole hosts tremble. Do you believe that? Here's my question. What does the devil know that we don't? Why is it that we're so reluctant to pray and yet when we do, he trembles. Let me tell you why he trembles. Because he knows that on the receiving end is a God that loves us. A God that, you know, I hear people say there's power in prayer. Forgive me, I, I, I humbly disagree. But there is power in a prayer answering God. You see the difference? There's a huge difference. Let's give the credit to God. And, and so when we pray, what prayer does is it activates heaven's strategic air command. God is about to get involved. Amen. He now has, he has a right now. And so the devil trembles, and for good reason, he trembles. He should. I like this one. This is a volume two, Selected Messages 377. Try to get a visual on this one. Ministering angels are waiting about the throne to instantly obey the mandate of Jesus Christ to answer every prayer offered in earnest living faith. Now, I, I am a very visual person. So in my mind, I am picturing Jesus on the throne and somebody on earth, a little family is gathering and earnestly pouring their heart out in prayer and I see Jesus leaning forward, intently listening, and angels leaning, wanting to see what he's listening to and what he's watching. And these angels, huge angels with these bulging muscles, see what's going on, and they look to Jesus, and you can see their muscles are twitching because they know what's about to happen. And Jesus turns to one of the angels. And that angel goes. But you know, my friends, how many times do those angels wait in vain? Because we don't pray. Because from our standpoint, the situation looks hopeless. But friends, we must never forget that nothing is impossible with God. Amen. Nothing. Don't grow hopeless. Turn to God. Don't look at the problem. Turn to the Savior. God has a solution. No matter how tangled a mess we have woven, God knows how to disentangle it. He knows how. 
appeal to him. You know, many times as I'm praying about a situation, I'll say to the Lord, you know, if you have any angels there to have nothing else to do because nobody else is praying, send them to. Send all the help you can send. And in my mind, I see them coming. So right here, I intercede for others and I pray and I have my prayer list with me. And then the last component is the most holy place. And there is only one furniture item there and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And I shared with you that the priest only entered here once a year on the Day of Atonement. And I shared how throughout the year, as the sins were being transferred to the sanctuary, there was a service at the end of the year on, on, uh, to deal with that record of sin that had collected there. And that service was known as the Day of Atonement. Okay? And so how does that point us to Jesus? Well, in the prophecies of Daniel, we find in Daniel 7, verse 13, we see the fulfillment of a prophecy. Uh, by the way, the fulfillment of this prophecy is actually found in Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, I'm not going to get into that right here, but I am going to do a series at the end of next year this, in, in, in this church, and we're going to study this, okay? But anyway, this prophecy is uttered um, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, which is a, a, an expression for Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near, what? Before him. And so this was showing the great antitypical day of atonement. What people don't realize is that the judgment actually takes place prior to the second coming. People don't realize that. And it's very significant that it happened before. Why? Because in, in Revelation 7, it says that God brings his reward to give to everyone. Well, how can he give his reward to everyone if the judgment hadn't taken place first? And so the book of Daniel points out that the judgment actually does um, take place first. And, uh, and, and, and so it, it points us to the work of Christ in judgment. And so today what's happening, my friends, is that God is preparing a people for the soon coming of Jesus. And so... Here, I ask God to search my heart. And there are some texts here uh, that reference this idea. In Psalms 19, verse 12, David says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my what faults? Secret. What we don't realize is actually happening here is, Dan, is, is, the, is uh, David is actually calling out for judgment. Does it sound like he's afraid of judgment? He's not afraid of judgment because he knows the judge. And so he's asking to be searched. And what David is saying, look, I, I know myself well enough to know that there could be stuff going on and I'm not aware of it. And so he's saying, Lord, I don't want to misrepresent you. If there's anything there, will you reveal it to me? I love what Jeremiah has to say about this. He describes us and this describes you and me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Let me pause there. You know, wouldn't it have been enough if he said the heart is deceitful and wicked? Wouldn't that have been enough? Doesn't that pretty much nail it? But he doesn't do that. He adds a few things. The heart is deceitful above all things. If it's deceitful above all things, what's more deceitful than the heart? Nothing. Our hearts, brothers and sisters, are very wicked without Jesus. We are capable of any crime without him. That's, and then only, not only is it deceitful, he says it's not only wicked, <laughs> he says desperately so. Then he says, who, can, uh, who knows it? And then, the, then we get the response. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man. And so, according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so God is the one that searches. And so I invite God into my life and I say, Lord, is there anything going on that I'm not aware of that I need to be made aware of? Will you show me if there is? Now, do I need to sit here and freak out now? No, because I've already invited him into my life. And, and God wants to take care of anything that doesn't represent him. Isn't that true? So I can trust him. But this is, but, um, and then again, David reminds us, another call for judgment. Oops. 
Let me back up one. Uh, Psalms 139, 23 and 24, David says what? Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me uh, in the way everlasting. I pray this every day. This David's prayer is my prayer. Lord, if there's anything in my life wherein I am not rightly representing you, will you please show me? Because I want to rightly represent you. And right here during my devotional time, this is when I open my heart to the Lord and I just talk friend to friend. And I reveal to him the dreams in my heart or my concerns in my heart. Uh, this is where we talk, right here. And, uh, and that concludes my time with him. And so I, I hope that you have been blessed by this presentation. You have a handout with you. You can, you can try it and see if you'd be blessed by it. But I hope you remember that the sanctuary helps me, for, helps Pastor Balte for two reasons. Number one, it helps me maintain my focus. Because if my mind does wander off, I go, oh, wait, I was at the menorah. And I can continue. And, uh, and not only that, but the furnishings prompt me what I should be praying for each day. But it also reminds me of what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is about to do so I can cooperate with him intelligently. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming soon. Amen. And when he does, he'll be coming for a group of people who love spending time with him in prayer each day. God bless you.